So yesterday, you guys shared something with me about Vols that just blew me away. Because, of course, most people are like, damn Vols, how do I get rid of the Vols? I wish I could kill every Vol. I want to get a Vol-sized machine gun and go around. I want to I want to teach the Vols. I want to divide them into the Crips and the Bloods, arm them both. They can kill each other. Eventually, they'll all be gone. Somehow, i got to work out a system to get rid of these Vols. much nicer relationship with Vols. First of all, we don't have coyote predation, which almost everybody has. Our, our cats go loose. Our chickens go loose. You know, our, our baby calves are out in the field. Um, you know, we have a good relationship with them because the primary food of a coyote is a vole. So uh, a field our size, that field will make, oh, my God, close to half a, half a million voles in a year. Their life cycle is, is crazy fast, uh, from birth to sexual maturity, 40 days. And then they'll be having, you know, like 10 babies per litter every, oh, I don't even know how many days that is. At the 10th day, I think that, that little baby vole is out on its own. So rapid. Anyway, lots of them out there. And God's and God's. Gobs and gobs, yes. And the coyotes will come and eat the voles because that's what they want. That's really – so if we knock down our vole population, they'd be looking for something else. My cats How would you do it anyway? Yeah, right. How could you? Um, but they're also, you know, uh, snakes are eating little baby voles. And, you know, it, they're, the, they're the food chain, food for everybody. But there's another really interesting part about voles that most people don't know, that a vole do 300 pellets a day of – you know, they'll, that's what they poop, <laughs> 300 pellets a day. And every one of those pellets has about 100,000 mycorrhizal spores in it. And those spores are responsible for, um, you know, building up the soil system and building up the root system of all your plants, too. So we actually want to encourage voles out there. We actually don't encourage them or discourage them. We've got just the right balance. Um, you know, we do protect our little young tender trees so they don't gird them over the winter time. Um, uh, we put, you know, wire cages, wire mesh around it. But other than that, um, you know, we just the, the cats pretty much keep them at bay. But anytime we open up one of those, like if we're taking apart one of our our brush piles or anything, you know, we find lots of baby vole nests and stuff. We also find all the others in there. We find the snakes in there, and everybody else is in the food chain. So yeah, those voles are really important. Um, when you put new trees out, for example, you have to have a certain balance of mycorrhizal, um, different kinds of mycorrhiza, mycorrhiza in there. And when you, um, a, a tree has the young, when it's young, it has a certain, a certain grouping of it that it needs. When it's middle aged, it has another kind of mycorrhiza. And then um, when it's an old tree, it has a third kind, a third batch that it needs. And these pellets that the voles are pooping all over the place have have all those different spores in it. The voles also, they're a transport system for it because what owls eat, you know, they come down and they grab a vole and then they go off and they either regurgitate or poop out a pellet and it's got those same spores in it too. So it really, there's a lot of spread of all that around. Isn't that cool? I love that. That that is amazing. I I think Sepp Holzer um, is a powerful advocate of like when you have too many voles, then that's when you need to... um, uh, bring in pigs, and and you guys are going to get pigs next year. Next year, yeah. Um, and and another thing is, is like a lot of people are like they they wouldn't care about the voles at all, except for the fact that they 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 girdle all their baby fruit trees. And uh, Sepp's position on that is is that um, you're supposed to like not clip off 
the branches. So everybody kind of shapes their fruit trees into lollipops. Ah. And then if you don't do that, then you'll have like a branch that's touching the ground. And the voles prefer that branch over the, the trunk. And they'll nibble on the branch, and they'll leave the trunk alone. Well, good. There's an advantage to our laziness and not getting around to wire caging all of our young plants, our young trees, then, isn't there? <laughs> well, right. And, and um, you know, the caging, I mean, there's lots of different – so, of course, with sap, there's the bone sauce. And, and the thing I advocate is that you need to have a kind of a dog that thinks that chasing deer is the most awesome thing in the world. Um, and, and then, of course, when you have a working dog, the dog – Never bring a working dog indoors. I mean, they've got a job to do outdoors, and so they they, they got to be outdoors 24/7. And um, so, anyway, but that's getting into a whole other topic. Uh, the key is, is I thought that this this is an aspect of voles mm-hmm. I had never considered. One of, I mean, I knew about aerating, and we got this new video out on Permies where some guy. Uh, uh, dug up a hugelkultur bed, and he had one squash plant that was doing so super awesome. So he dug it up to find out why was this one plant so much happier than the others, and he found, like, a hole that some animal had made. So maybe it was a mole, maybe it was a vole, maybe it was who knows what. We're in there anyway. Yeah. Somebody was in there, and the roots had just gone ape in the holes, and they didn't really care about the wood. Which I think is reasonable. I think I think hugelkultur wood is it's like uh, it's going to make the plants happy, like a little bit in the second year and a lot in the third year and beyond. That's when they really sing. The first year, not so much, and and that's kind of what was shown in this. It was like uh, they, he had built the hugelkultur bed like two or three months earlier, and the roots were kind of like, yeah, the wood's okay. I don't really care about it. So, um, but anyway, but these holes, these holes that were under the soil. That's where the roots were going crazy. Yeah, and I bet you that's because of the vole pellets that were being dropped all over the place there. I I think high probability of that. Yeah, yeah. That, now that I yeah, so that was good. I, I let's talk for a moment about you. You mentioned something a little earlier this morning about hanging beef. Do you remember what we were talking about? Yeah, when we butcher our beef, you know, if you USDA standards are, I think it's just a few days, three days, something like that. For grain-fed beef, do you remember the standards? I can't remember. Yeah, but something they, they, have to, they have to take them and chill them down to a certain temperature real fast, and then they have to hang them not that long yeah, before they cut days, them up. And then, they, and then the butcher does your cuts for you. But you can't do that with with grass-fed beef. You can. It just tastes well. Yeah, you can. It'll be tough and it'll taste not right. Um, it actually is supposed to hang for a few weeks yeah. to really get the three. enzyme activity in it. And, yeah, and that I think is, you know, we have a good butcher who really pays attention to that. But I don't think that follows USDA standards. I know that when you're in a fancy pants restaurant and you want to buy a $50 steak, then then they're big. One of the things that they advertise is, oh, this one, those aged 28 days. Yeah, the longer the aging, the better the beef. But the standards yeah, don't allow that. The enzymes break the meat down yeah. just slightly and start the... The tenderizing process, really. Yeah, so you really do want that in your beef. You want the long-aged one. It's going to taste a whole lot better, and ours does taste really, really good. You do that longer aging. So um, let's let's talk a moment about. I've got a note on here about profit, and and um, it it seems to me that that um, you know one one thing is, is to optimize your processes. I think this morning that uh, you were talking about something which I think is a, is a common pitfall that a lot of people make. It's like, oh, I'm going to raise food, 
and then I'm going to I'm going to put my food in boxes. I'm going to go down. First, I'm going to get up at three o'clock in the morning, pick a bunch of stuff, put it in boxes, put it in the car, drive down to the farmer's market, and then desperately try and sell it to people, and then take the leftovers home. And and so you guys did that for a little bit, and boy, did you ever get rich on that idea. <laughs> rich in experience. Yes, indeed. Yeah, we were doing farmer's market for a while. But then I really, one day, with a fistful of dollars, you know, going, wow, we, you know, sold just about everything today. Aren't we doing great? And, and I don't know, but because it was, we'd sold almost everything, and I had a little time to sit quiet. I was thinking, how many hours, true, true hours, how many hours did it take me to prep and to have the helpers and, you know, and do this and how many of us came and set up and sat here all day and sold stuff. And, you know, I looked at this big pile of dollars and I went, my true profit was about 65 bucks. And true profit. And 65 bucks, you know, and this is like figuring That's out That's paying you wage. zero. You pay, paying you zero. And paying minimum wage to everybody else. And that's, wow. That's, I mean... I want my three days back. <laughs> yeah, because there's a lot of time going to getting that food raised up. Cleaning it and, you know, yeah, to say, and that wasn't even adding in, like, growth time. That was just the three days it took to do anything that we did to get ready for selling, picking, cleaning, washings, bagging, labeling, setting up the tent, and, you know, on we go. Um, that was hard. That was really hard work for very minimal profit. And, uh, you know, unless you go scale, I don't think you can really get by on that real well. That's that's a hard part. People don't realize, you know, what they're paying for in there is not – farmers are not getting rich off that. Well, I think it's another thing, too, is that once – I mean, you know, I, I advocate not scaling up, but instead, you know, raising the quality so crazy high yeah. that you can get more dollar per pound – and then sell just a few few pounds. Don't don't try to you know because the thing is is that you just you just gotta because one of the things I know is that you guys buy hardly any food. How much of your how much of your food do you suppose comes right off of this land every year? Oh, uh, the majority of it. You know, this past month on food, I I think I spent seventy bucks, and that's because I bought olive oil, coconut oil, um, you know, a, a few things, chocolate. <laughs> oh yeah, chocolate. Two of the staples of life. But the things that we, you know, we don't grow here. Um, you know, I pretty much buy in season when I do, and there's a few things we don't grow. But you know, if we don't grow it, we don't. It's not just a question of money. It's also a question of quality of life. Yeah. Um, we've had interns here, and when we have interns here, we often say, "Keep up as best you can," but we don't expect you to go as long as we go every day. And we're not young pups. <laughs> no, but we'll run them into the ground, and it has to do with the healthy food that we eat. That we've been eating it long enough that we can go that long. You guys are working on your nutrition the way that you looked after Daniel's nutrition. Yeah, and yeah. he's one of the reasons we do we do this because we saw the big change it made in him when he extrapolated out to our own situation. Yeah, and and everything I mean, comes down to the richness of the soil. You know, you you don't get nutrient dense food by by, you know, planting in dirt, yeah. you know, that's, we really work on rebuilding, building and rebuilding and nourishing our soil. We treat our soil just like it's a crop. Yeah. You know, we want to nourish the soil all the time. So composting, spraying, we spray our, our, we spray biodynamic preps. We actually treat our land homeopathically 
just like you, you know, you go the naturopath and, the, and you would treat your your own body homeopathically. We uh, we spray raw almost, milk. We almost. spray raw milk on the land, which is really excellent for the well, we for the for milk. the grass and soil. It's, it's got live enzymes in it. It's got lots of nutrition yeah. and the milk sugars and yeah. We actually dilute it. What do we do? We do one three gallons to twenty. Three gallons of milk to twenty gallons of water, and we spray per that acre. per acre. That's dirt cheap for great nutrition for your soil and your plants. Uh, there's compost tea. There's all this stuff that we do to, to help the soil uh, be as healthy as it can be, and that comes back to us in the form of healthy food, which, if you want to look at it monetarily, was going to save us money on medical bills down the road. Because <laughs> it saved money for the animals. Yeah. And then there's also, like, another part of it that we pay a lot of attention to. There's the nourishment of the soil that's beneath the ground, but there's also the nourishment of the land that's above the ground. So having having things like bees and butterflies and moths and um, dragonflies and all these things, they actually perform a function as well. Gnats. Gnats. Yep, we like you our gnats. Uh, well, we have, we have them too, but it's the dark side of keeping your soil healthy. Yeah, you know, you know, you're going to get that stuff as I well. I get bit by a mosquito twice a season. That's yeah. it. It's, there's just not that many because they're bat food. They're bat food. <laughs> but if you're out shoveling as dust starts to fall, you know that I notice them. I notice the gnats especially. I think what I'm saying though is that the the symphony of life that's above the soil also serves a purpose in yeah. the happiness of the plant. You know, so when you've got bird song, when you've got you know frogs croaking, when you've got you know bees buzzing. All this stuff, there's something in the vibration of the amount of life above the soil as well as the, the worms and the beetles and everybody who's beneath the soil that's contributing to the life force that's then engaged in the plant. Yeah. So that's a part that I doesn't get talked about true. too much, but it's something that we really we work with. So I, it seems to me like there's many strategies, and a lot of people that are getting started are like, Okay, I'm on the land. I'm quitting my job at Corporateville, and um, I need to build compost. And I need to I need to have money to pay the mortgage. I'm up to my eyeballs, but I can make a go of it. I'm going to be a farmer, no. and it's like that's doomed. Yeah, doomed. That's doomed. The education process to be good at a farming, it, 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 the fastest you could do it is ten years. I think Honestly. we said just this past year, this summer, we said ten years. We've been here. And I remember one day we were up in the garden, and one of us said, I don't remember which one of it was, uh, one of us as it was, but one of us said, you know, I think it takes about 10 years, and then you start asking good questions. Yeah. And that was a profound thing for us to say, was at 10 years, you start asking yourself really good questions now. Up until now, it was just trial and error. Yeah, it helps if you're raised on a farm. That gives you a leg up, but even then, if you weren't paying attention, you still have to go back and start over. And the learning curve just takes that long. It yeah. just does. So it's not something you can leave a corporate job and just start in on. We have uh, people not, who came to be interns who, who grew up on a farm. And I remember them saying, and now they're, of course, older, and saying exactly that. That Yeah, they were there, but they didn't like farming when they were a kid. Yeah. And they didn't want to learn farming. Now they're drawn to it much later, but they, they missed out because they weren't paying attention. So, I mean, I, so the place I was going with that was I was kind of thinking that, like, what you – what. I, my impression has been, and and this starting three and a half years ago when I first stopped by, is that um, the draw, the need to 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 bond with the 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 soil, 
the, to bond with, I, I think soil is probably the best word. To, you know, to, we call to, it the farm. Not necessarily the structures, but like the, the life that's here. Mm-hmm. And it's like to, I mean, you, you just entered into this romance <laughs> with the, the life that is here. And that, the need to be into that relationship what just overwhelmed everything else. And the idea of money just took a back seat, a distant back seat. And then eventually it's like, oh, hey, you know what? We probably ought to come up with a few more bucks somehow. What do you think? And that's kind of like more. So it seems like when, when the money thing is more of an afterthought, then it seems like it, it comes. We asked ourselves, what do we do really, really good? What are we good at? Um, because the, I could see we were heading towards maybe doing a CSA and, you know, looking at like kind of the normal routes. And, boy, I just kept looking at numbers, thinking, wow, I don't think we can do it on that. I don't like CSAs. (laughs) Frankly, I don't. I I don't either. Well, the the life force of the soil and the land goes out, goes out, goes out. Everything you box up and send off and nothing comes back. So it just depletes. I don't like that whole concept. Yeah, well, it is a different reason you don't like it than... You know what most people would think. It's just that you know you're sending your nourishment. That's on right now. Most everything on the farm stays on the farm. Yeah. You know we have plenty of people here, but they eat the food here, <laughs> and the food stays here. So and the animals eat the food here, and the, you know everything stays here in the in the natural cycle. Um, I, in what you're saying though, Paul, about you know we realized what we were good at is teaching. We're really good at teaching, so that's our income comes from teaching things that are farm related, right. and we've made it work really well for us. I, I understand that a few times a year, somebody calls you up, and uh, they say we want to come and and be co-farmers on your farm for a few days or a week or something like that, and you say no, no, leave us alone, go away, <laughs> and and then they then they then they say we will write a big check. And it's like, um, okay. Number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, but on the, on the upside, it is somebody coming up to you. But usually, these people are like, they've never heard of permaculture. They've never heard of biodynamic. They've so they never want to be a farmer someday. They want to be, and they, they've heard this is the the place. And and so then, and so it's like, so that's a that's a that's a path. I mean, you're teaching them. Yeah, but it's yeah. like painful to teach those guys because it's like there's it's like they could you at least read a book before you come? Well, actually, we sign books before they come. <laughs> okay, all right. The common perception with a lot of people is that farming takes no skill. Yeah. Anyone can do it because yeah, yeah, everyone yeah. in the past did it, so it must be in our blood somehow, right? Yeah, you plant some well, and it all comes up, and you yeah. know, just do what Monsanto tells you. You sit in the rocking chair and watch. <laughs> <laughs> There's a there's a great video on YouTube of this guy. He's like a comedy guy, and he's like, he's like, hey, hey, you want to make some money? Look at this. And he pulls out this big wad of cash. I got this money from farming. He says, look, look over there. See that animal? And he points at a chicken. It's made of chicken. Yeah, yeah. You just kill it, and it's made of chicken. You can sell it for money. And if you don't kill it, eggs pop out of its ass. 
<laughs> you can sell those. <laughs> I think that's really true. That's what people think. It's just, you know, you... Except a lot of people don't know they'd pop out of their ass. Yeah. <laughs> we had a woman who, who, who came to a chicken class, and they, they told her where the eggs came from, and she was like, no way. No way. no way. That can't be true. She thought they came out of their chest somewhere because they sit on the eggs and, you know, the little chicks are all poking their little heads up out of the nest with the in the front somewhere. So that was pretty funny. We were like, yeah. Like a kangaroo or something. Yeah, yeah. a little somewhere. <laughs> but, you know, and, Probably and didn't eat eggs after we've, that. We've had people here on the farm who, you know, like people who are in their 20s and 30s who've been surprised just randomly surprised at where food comes from. Like they didn't know. I remember sometime when I, I think it was a beet I pulled up one time, and someone said, oh, they don't grow on a tree. And they thought a beet grew on a tree, like a fruit. <laughs> they didn't realize it grew under the ground. And I think, wow, that, you know, even as a kid, I know I knew that. <laughs> well, But not in the city. If you've never seen it anywhere except on the produce section, how would you know that? Well, so the the thing I guess the, the the important thing is is that when people come out and they do this, they they like cause what they do is they come out and then you work them all day long. Um, we don't well, not all day long, anymore. but but you you work them a lot. They're not butchering chickens or anything. They're not cleaning out the chicken coop. No, we don't. You know, we we save the really the raunchy tasks for days when we're in a great mood and nothing could knock us down. That's the day we clean out the yeah. chicken coops. Yeah, like yesterday. Um, but but what we do That's is because we came right. <laughs> for you. Yes, we did. Um, anyway, we uh, we take them around. We we have them accompany us and do whatever we're doing that day. Yeah. And and then and try to give them an overview of this is what farming looks like. This these are the kind of things. This is how our day starts. You know, and the day starts with a, a bit of time in the morning between milking and getting all the birds out and moving the cows and. You know, and the goats are out, and you know, and then checking. And Joseph does a really nice thing every week. You probably spend, what, maybe fifteen minutes with every. Depends on that animal. Uh, she's talking about well, I just sit and observe them for a while, not watch them like a hunter, but just sit and be with them when they're doing their regular tasks, and and see if there's anything that doesn't show up in the feeding process or in the putting them in a nice process and stuff like that. Anything that might be affecting their uh, well-being, you know, and see if I can improve it and what I have to do. And it tells me a lot. It keeps me in touch with, because you can, as busy as life is, you rush through the chores in the morning, you rush through the chores in the evening, and you can do all that without really even looking at the animal at all. And um, if you stop and watch them for a while, you'll learn... Uh, you learn stuff about them. You learn what they like, what they don't like, where they prefer to be, when. Um, and I do it at different times of day uh, for each animal. Like what's something you've you noticed about any of our animals this past week? Well, you, well, this past week we were doing the broiler hens and the broiler roosters. and um, Oh, yeah. Keep, the, yeah, they're healthier this year than they've ever been before. And what that translates to is uh, in years past, we've had just a few roosters that would go around ripping up other birds when they get their testosterone running. Well, mating or whatever. They just rip up the necks and stuff. But um, this year there was at least 10 that were doing it. And uh, I had to uh, figure out ways to... 
to keep them from killing each other, basically. Uh, before I did. Before you did at the end of the week. So, yeah, we just watched them. I watched them day by day, and I saw it getting worse and worse. At one point, it got to the point where, I mean, this was before any wounds showed up, but I, I got to the point where I, I knew I had to segregate them. I had to uh, pull a bunch of roosters out and spread them around. Yeah, we took them in to put them into any paddock or you know, any area that was enclosed in a small uh, a small area. Big enough things. that they could get away from each other. Yeah, they needed their territorial space. And we left, I think we left six or eight of them with the hens. Uh, and that was a good number because they, for whatever reason, they didn't tear each other up after we did that. They really just needed their space. They were boys. They were growing boys, like growing into adulthood now, mm-hmm. and they needed their territory. So, yeah, we spread them out. But other things you've noticed, things about the goats or about the cows or... Well, this is little stuff. That, you yeah, know. but it's the little stuff that really makes the big difference in the health and the vital life force that that animal has. And you're so good at noticing it. Because mm-hmm. I hear you come in all the time and you, you know, you say, oh, I noticed the, you know, the goat's hooves or, you know, something's doing this and I need to go pay attention to that before it turns into something. And, uh, you know, it's hard to pick out specifics. The latest one was that the, they've been chewing down the blackberries down in their pan, and uh, they chew them down to a certain height, and then they move on to the next one, and they're at a, the right height to, to scratch up Bonnie's udder. So I need to go trim those yeah, back. It's the kind of small detail stuff that were you not spending 15 minutes looking, you know, just just being present. I didn't take 15 minutes looking. That just took one milky, seeing uh-huh. the cuts on the teeth. Yeah. But and then you, you know, really anticipate, you know, and you deal with a problem before it becomes a problem. Yeah. There's, um, with the laying hens, we had that one rooster. He was one of those roosters that was uh, a third-tier rooster, and we kept him because um, he was of a different genetic stock, and we'd had the old roosters, a long line of them, many generations, and we wanted to change out the the genetics in our flock of, of the laying hens. So we kept one of these roosters that had been one of the ones that hung out by the coop and waited for the hens. We had two of them, and we, we kept two of them, and we picked the better of the two to keep, uh, the least violent. And we watched him for six months. Uh, he was on probation that time, <laughs> yeah. and he didn't pass. Uh-huh. So then we took him out and put a brand-new, different genetic. You know, he's, he's going to be the daddy of any of the chicks, so you want to. Yeah, you want a good one. But he, this last one just wasn't, he wasn't kind enough to the hen. Yeah, he's too And too much stress. So now we got a different one. we got a sweet little one up there. He's really nice. Yeah. He loves those he's ladies, and one. they just love him back. I haven't seen him defend them yet, but I have a feeling he would. Yeah. And we've got the turkeys. We didn't mention the turkeys down there, which we absolutely love. We yeah. love raising turkeys. However, we only do it every two to three years because turkeys really take a while. They're a real different animal. And, and again, we started with turkeys saying, hey, we got chickens. We're doing pretty good with chickens. They can't be too different. They are. They might as well be another animal. They're so they're different. They're, they, yeah, but they're so different in personality um, and how you handle them. We, um, they're, they're really, they are as dumb as you have heard they are. But well, now this breed, this I mean, this is a a, a breed that yeah. I think I think other breeds are smarter. Yeah. 
We've so far raised five different breeds, and I have not seen a smart one yet. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> We've we have nothing else. You've got to remember there are wild turkeys. Wild turkeys, I think, are a whole different thing. That And wild turkeys are wily and smart, and everybody says, you know, they're really intelligent. I understand that. But I think the ones that, you know, We've got some heirlooms here, uh, but they're still being raised as, as really a meat bird, and they don't they have to be smart. They're cared for. Yeah, they are, and we they're take good care of them. But you have to. One of the things, if you're going to have them, we have to. Whenever we raise them, that's the year we'll spend at home, because you have to be home at dusk. Um, the batch we had before this, we had 20 of them, and we had an L-shaped. Uh, Apple orchard was enclosed, and to the right of it, it went over to where the broody pen was. It was L-shaped. One out of three nights, turkeys could not find their way home. And it's like, how long long was the L-shape? It was like 100 feet down and, you know, 100 feet to the right. That's the L-shape. They couldn't find their way home one out of three nights. That's their intelligence. We would have to be here. Otherwise... We're up in the trees after dusk trying to get them back down so we can put them in so that they're not out at night. We don't like them to sleep in the trees because we had one that slept in the trees and then flew down outside the fence and got eaten by coyote. That's the one coyote kill we've had. But So we try to keep them in at night, and they don't like to sleep in the shelter. They prefer to be up in the trees. They want to be 20 feet up, so we've got to be sure to get in. And their shelter is secure. No animals can get them. It's only five feet up, though. Yeah. They're, they're, they're like a high roost, but it's only five feet off the ground, and it's behind screens, so nothing can see them from outside, really. But, um, but yeah, they don't feel as safe there as they would feel outside in the tree. So, I don't know. I don't see myself building a tower for them to sleep in at night. <laughs> but we do like to be sure that all our animals are secure for the evening. That's one of the ways we, we keep this predation problem down. And with all the birds, you know, be, birds in for the night, that's... That's our policy on them. That means no evening entertainment away from home. Yep. Forget that. We look at what time is sunset, and we've got to be here. We yep. want to go out and at, night, at night in the summertime. Oh, my God, sunset's like 9 p.m. So, yeah, we don't have a nightlife when we're raising turkeys. No. <laughs> now, I know you guys uh, usually have a few interns around. I don't I only think here right now, though. No, not right now. We've right got now. one coming in later today. Oh, okay. All right, all right. Um, and and so that that seems like you know then if you've got some interns that and you get them they're here long enough and you can trust them then yeah. then maybe you can yeah. go do something once in a had, while. We just had Penilla. two months. Two months. Penilla was here from yeah. Norway. She was a return intern who we absolutely adore, and she just left just a few days ago. Sounds poetic, a return intern. Yeah. She came on vacation. She chose to come here, you know, flying all the way from Norway to spend a week here. She's been a month here her first time. Yeah. yeah, five weeks, I think it was. Um, yeah, and she was wonderful, and we were happy to have her come back. So um, off on another topic here, uh, uh, the first time I was here, you had me drink something that was really weird. And and uh, it's like I never knew this existed till I came here. Did you survive? And I really liked it. And And then you said, oh, it's so easy. Here's all you got to do, and you gave me all the stuff, and I took it home, and I tried to do all the things, and and it turns out that when it comes to food, I am not to be trusted to try and make it into good things. I need to give that to Jocelyn, not you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so for me, what I made was horrible, but what was here was nectar of the gods. It was so good, and it, and it is called water kefir. 
Water kefir. And kefir. so I've heard of kefir with wa- with milk, you know. And yeah, it's this got is that kefir made with, um, ta- I don't even know how, but I took a class in it five years ago, and I made it every 48 hours for five years. So you have to know that it's really, really, really simple to do. I can't believe you couldn't figure that out, but you, yeah. you know what you did. You left it too long. I don't know what I did. That's the only way you can make it fail is to ignore it and forget my, about it. My failure with all forms of cooking usually is like, um, okay, while that's cooking, I'm going to go try and get this other thing done. Uh, I do that in the garden. And then I forget. I master burn pans for the longest time until I realized if I'm just going to run out and cut some basil to put in this, that I need to shut the burner off and then go out and get the basil. There you go. my policy now. Yeah. Because, yeah, the first two, three years, I was a master of Cajun cooking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Joseph said everything was blackened. <laughs> I'm better at it now. Now we shut the burners off and then we go outside. Yeah, it's always uh, damn damn good food coming here. I you know, always looking forward to coming here. So, in fact, you made me a pie. I'm going to pretend you made it for me. I mean, sure, you let everybody else have you some. You made it for me. <laughs> I, yeah, I made two peach pies last night, and uh, we had blueberry and um, what was – what did I put in there? Marion berries for pancakes this morning. Mm. So, yeah, we, it's always always good eating coming here. Um, and, and it's like I, I always have that kind of feeling like when I'm here that it's like uh, – this, you know, like like I'm going to end up having superpowers by the time I leave or something because it's so much better than like what I've been getting. Like you know, because uh, right now I don't have land, although I'm really close to getting some. Uh, and so I'm I'm eating the the organic, you know, that that paltry, tasteless stuff at the grocery store. Organic has such a wide range. You know, you can be organic simply by doing nothing to your soil or your your produce or I mean, or you can be really good. Some people are really, really excellent at paying attention to it, but it still falls under the same banner. You know, we're under the organic banner. But, right. You know, we practically worship our soil. That was something, so, that was, uh, something we ran into. We, Jacqueline went and spoke at the Organic Beekeepers Conference down in Arizona this past year. And um, their big thing is no, no amendments. They call it no amendments or inputs, no treatments to the hives, right? They said the hive. But their their definition of treatments was really broad. And I thought to myself, you know, if you're living in Arizona where there's desert flowers everywhere and uh, in this particular area where they were having the conference, not a lot of agriculture, you can do that. You can get away with that because nature provides the 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 uh, rejuvenation to the flowers and stuff like that. But if you're in farm country and you deplete your soil, you have to regenerate it. You have to add something back in order to have the health levels that you had before. So they were considering that kind of stuff, though, the biodynamic stuff that we do with our soil to be treatment. And, you know, it, it, it struck me that keeping bees in agricultural areas Without without the amendments, it doesn't work. Their health declines, the health of your soil declines, all this other stuff. But there, it was an interesting perspective on it. It, it was just the difference in, in what they defined as a treatment and, the, and whether yeah, it was good I, or bad. We take full responsibility for every animal, every plant that's on our land. That We take full responsibility for making sure that whatever's needed to make it the most healthy it yeah. can be 
we'll provide it if it's not already here. Of course, the goal is that you're working towards a closed system that then naturally, it's like mulch, you know, when your soil is dry, cracked dirt, that's one thing, but then when you start adding compost in, you start learning how to do mulching yeah. and all that, then you provide the moisture. But they were, they, were, the they were just looking at the bees themselves only, and they limited their view to that, and judging the bee health, you know, size of the comb and all this other stuff and that, that we talked about. There, which so is just some, yeah, some people. The, the people that were the most pushy, I say, or, or the most, the mo not pushy is the wrong term, but the ones with the strongest personalities. <laughs> we're pushing, we're pushing. I think pushy. I, I, I we're, we're pushing those. You had me at pushy. I'm listening now. Those, uh, uh, I know the kind of people you're talking about. I'm with you, man. <laughs> I'm supporting you here, pushy fuckers. <laughs> All right. Anyway. What about them? Anyway. Didn't know what the hell they were talking about. No, they were only looking at, they were looking at it from this perspective of the bees only. And here, we, we feel that the way to, to promote bee health is to promote the health of the entire Land surface. Farm yeah. Everything that lives on it. Yeah. So we, and that's what I mean by when we Here's take responsibility, we look at the difference being that we're not just raising bees. Everything on the farm contributes to the health of those bees. Everything. You know, even if my cows are happy, that has an effect on yeah. ultimately if my bees are happy. So everything's got to work together, and we have to be participating in that actively to make sure that that comes about. So it is a broad view that we take, but it, I think it's really, it makes a big difference, and you can feel it. So now when it comes to adding stuff, now you're, you're saying like, I, I think you said something like, you, you know, you have to do these things in order to add back. And, and, and I think a big part of permaculture is, is, is that to have, uh, is to think about what are the things that you want to add back, and then um, how do you work with nature to add that back, but without me having to work. I mean, this is, and so I made a podcast a little bit ago with um, Brian Kirkliet and Alexandra King, and we were talking about hey, permaculture. Brian. Yeah, Alexandra. yeah, <laughs> they are, they are awesome. Uh, and, and I was, we were kind of uh, talking about permaculture versus biodynamic, and it does seem to me like biodynamic is where you are doing more. You, it's like, well, I'm going to make this, this. Um, stuff, a prep, I'm going to make some compost, I'm going to spray some compost tea, I'm going to, and I think permaculture is more like, uh, I'm going to do nothing. I've, I've set things up in such a way that now I farm from my hammock. And um, <laughs> See, I've seen the Bullock Brothers farm, and I've seen their to-do list. They don't do nothing. They do a lot. Right, but so, they've got a different mission. Yeah. And we talked about we talked about the Bullock Brothers a little bit, too. Hmm. And um, with the Bullock Brothers, um, I, I believe the Bullock Brothers have kind of reached their their plateau. They've reached their not not plateau. They they they're like um, like like you guys right now. You are about thirty percent of the way to being where you want to oh, be. If that, if that, and and then you'd say less, and I'd say more. And ah, see, damn, I'm good at what I do. Right, we turned, we turned a corner last year. In terms of in terms of the way the farm looked and the way it held its soil quality, but we got a ways to go. So, and then Brian Kirkliet is probably about about the same, probably about thirty percent. And then um, and then I think that the uh, the Bullock Brothers are like about ninety four percent. Wow. And it's where they, because really they're plant geeks. 
Man, they love every plant. And what can we grow here? What else can we grow here? You know, I've already got like four of those growing, but I don't have any of this. So I want to plant one of these. And and it's like so then they got a little nursery business just but it's like if and so this is part of how I can kind of if you gave the Bullock Brothers a billion dollars to spend on anything that they wanted it's kind of like I don't think they would really change anything <laughs> I mean okay now you can hire out to have a hundred people come and do whatever you want yeah they're good yeah, uh, you I know understand that you know if I, I I've looked at that about. You know, what if I won the lottery? What if I, you know, how, what would it change here on the farm? We would probably put that greenhouse in. Mm -hmm. Oh, I want to talk you out of that, but okay, all right. We would (laughs) probably put the, you know, better fencing around the perimeter, Um, but but not a whole lot of difference. Would I add texture to the land? (laughs) (laughs) Or do what Paul suggests. (laughs) <laughs> you are so bad. <laughs> I got a bad boy here. <laughs> we, yeah, but you know, I I don't think we probably you know put better roofs on, you know, things like that, get more solar panels, things like that, but not really change the sh- the basic um, layout of the land and things like that. More hugel beds would go in, but it's more of what we're doing rather than really saying, oh, I don't like what we're doing, and we change right. it. Just go a little further down the line. So, I mean, I, I think, so like the Bullet Brothers, um, their, where their destination is, is that I don't I don't see something where it's like, uh, um, like we want to grow food that's like the healthiest food, like like the top 1% of the top 1%. That's not what the, but you guys are definitely shooting for that. Yeah. But that is on our goal. yeah, but the Bullock Brothers are kind of like, oh, we got food, we're good, you know, and uh, um, and the interns. That, well, there's, I mean, I think that they're kind of like. If you take food to the nth degree, it does something different. It feeds your soul, and that's different. This is this is it's, it's the food thing is has been and is starting to migrate into a spiritual uh, evolution for us. Uh, and Rudolf Steiner said that back in the beginning of the century, you know, about that the quality of food is is it's um, so people can't develop will without having really good nutrition in their food. And I think that's one of the things that happens happens in America right now is, you know, we've got this food that's coming along that's machine made practically. You know, there's, it doesn't have soul. It doesn't have the connection with the farmer's intent being in there, you know, when we raise food here for other people and for ourselves to eat and for our animals to eat, because it all goes somewhere, um, you know, we're really conscious of how much of an important role that we play in it. And I don't mean that in an ego way. I mean it that we have to be paying attention. We have to have our heart and soul in the work that we're doing. We have to be nurturing the food in every way that we can, even, you know, with the fact that, like, last night we were planting seeds, you know, and we we say a little prayer over each seed, you know, welcome to the world. You know, this is going to be a great place for your for you to fulfill your your life's growth here. You know, and that may sound a little I don't know, a little funky to some people, but you know, it is it that's the level of interaction we want to have with everything here. You know, I've talked to my bees. 
You know, I, I talk to the cows. I talk everything here. Hudson's out. She, she does. <laughs> I do, I do. I want connection with everything here. You know, even while we're doing this, this, this little bird is coming and landing. Like, what is this, three feet from us? Yeah, what's that bird want? That's like right here. There's something. to hang out with us. You know, and and I like that we live in a place where birds come and land three feet away from us and, you know, chirp a few times and fly off. I had one, I had one stuck in the mudroom the other day. And <laughs> he was in the window, and I went to – I put the dog outside first, and then when I went to uh, – I opened the door back there, and it was going to steer it out there, and it popped down on my finger. <laughs> and I took it to the door. So this stuff doesn't happen very often. Congratulations, Joseph. I think you've now met the line where you are now a Disney princess. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a bluebird, though. <laughs> so, um, so you were saying about the spiritual we're, part of it. There is a spiritual aspect of biodynamic. And I do think that a lot of, there are a lot of people where they start off with permaculture and they end up with biodynamic. And, and, uh, and the thing that I was explaining to... It's to, a very logical progression, because when I started reading about biodynamics, it was the thing I said, wow, we're already, you know, we're doing this permaculture stuff, and, and we've got so much of ourselves invested into this, that this relationship that we have with the land, the animals, the crops we grow, the everything about the, you know, the home we live in, everything here has such a significance to us, and such a, the interaction is so important. We're already straying right into biodynamic territory anyway. You know, that's, we do believe that this, like Joseph has said, the food that we raise here is our medicine. It's, it nurtures us. It allows us to think clearly, to make a commitment to something and stick to it, you know, and to things that I think a lot of people that eat the crap from the middle aisles in the supermarket can't do. You don't need as much either. If you eat really healthy food, uh, your portion sizes will drop just because you'll feel fuller and more sated. Yeah, because you've got nutrients and your body says, hey, I'm full. I got enough as I need. When you, when you eat got empty... Got for. Yeah. No thanks. When you eat empty calories, you know, your body's always going, I need more, I need more, because it hasn't gotten the nutrition yet. So I think that's part of the obesity epidemic in the in yeah. America I right now. I don't know, solve it, but they could go a long way towards solving the obesity epidemic if they focus on creating healthy food all the way around, get rid of the crap. Because <laughs> the cells don't want that. They want something else, but they're going to keep asking, keep asking until they get it. And, you know, if you keep feeding stuff that doesn't have it, you're going to just send quantity through. And that's going to sit you in your body. And how can yeah. you make, you know, conscious decisions about... Well, you know, for, for instance, I, I'm not eating grains right now because uh, um, a friend convinced me that I might be allergic to them. Low-grade allergy, nothing that showed up like, you know, hives or anything like that. But I went off it for a little while, and I had gotten headaches every once a week regularly. They went away. And I didn't know it before, but I had brain fog. That went away when I stopped eating the grains. Uh, and it has to do with the way they've modified the grains over the past few decades. It, it's not the grains that, that uh, I grew up with as a kid. Of course, Wonder Bread was what I grew up with as a kid, so I can't really say that. But the grains that were out there when I was a kid were different than the stuff that they're uh, giving out to the public today. Yeah, so it, it shifted underneath or, or without me noticing, and I became allergic to something that changed 
without me noticing. So you probably know a little but, bit about that too. I think what they do is they pay they pay by the bushel by the gra- by the protein content. How what? They, yeah, they get paid different different. I was just I was you just mentioned Wonder Bread. I saw I Ernie Wisner was over at my house a, a bit ago, and and he was telling me that they use Wonder Bread sometimes to patch rocket mass heaters. Yeah. Because he said, he said, I don't know if this is true, but he says the material that Wonder Bread is made out of today is not a wheat-based product. Oh, it's like it's like more like foam rubber. And 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 he says it's great to like if you've got something on your stove that you know, either plug a hole or something, you take a little Wonder Bread oh <laughs> and you mash it up and you plug the hole with it. It's and it's like if you got a leaky duct somewhere, you just wrap Wonder Bread around it. It'll last forever. And, yeah, what he was saying. I knew the guy who threw it out in his backyard to feed his ducks, and it was still there a month later. No mold. No mold <laughs> I, I can't. I can't. I can't speak. I mean, I don't know. I, this is what I heard. That's because mold doesn't look at it and think it's food. <laughs> but but you know. Yeah. The, the, the point is, when I got off the grains, um, my head cleared up, and I was able to focus longer. And, and uh, be more in the world, you know. There was a gal. Uh, it was. It was. Um, and I wouldn't have known without having done that. Couple couple of years back, there, there was there was a gal, and uh, we were, you know, doing a commute. We was like five or six people in the rig and going somewhere, and and uh, she was saying that a few years back she was deathly ill. And somebody suggested that she eliminate grains, and she says, "You think about it, mammals are not designed to eat grain." Mm-hmm. And um, and so she cut all the grains out, and all of her serious health problems went away. Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't know what I I've, I've eliminated most grain from my life. I hardly ever, yeah. and I know that grain is part of pie. Was, this is painful for me. Um, but but I do so usually I don't I'll I'll go like weeks without any grain and then well, somebody will make me a pie I've and of course pie with almond crust no but I've learned how to make it with almond crust now so I can make a nut crust pie in there but um, what you're saying I think that you know it, and this even plays over into bees too you know when when um, the agricultural bigwigs have gotten together and said you know hey we pay higher prices for grain that has a higher protein content. So let's start manipulating the protein content. Right, right. And what you so do you is you're ultimately, price. yeah, you're getting paid premium price, but your body, the human body then isn't recognizing this as food because even if you ate it for millennia, all of a sudden you didn't eat it with a protein content that's that high and it's coming into your body and your body's going, what the heck was that? Well, so along those lines, I mean, wheat is graded when you take it in. I mean, I, I used to drive wheat truck. Oh, I drove combine as a kid, and then I drove wheat truck for a while, too. And then when you go and you drop it off, that's the first thing you want to do is they want to grab a handful of the wheat, and they examine it. And they want to make sure the kernels are full yet dry. And um, and so basically it gets it gets graded on a variety of different things. Uh, and they do test the protein count also. Mm-hmm. But here's here's the thing that's important that I think a lot of people don't understand is that when they grade that wheat, they, uh, um, you know, most of it is like, okay, this is good. You know, we're gonna we're gonna sell this and whatnot, and because it's only caked with chemicals and stuff and pesticides and persistent herbicides that are that. systemic in the system that you can't wash off. And, you know, that's good. You know, we like poisoning people with this way, and so this is good. We're gonna put that. In. But then there's this other stuff where it's like, 
no, that's not good enough to feed the people. So that'll be chicken feed or hog feed or something like that. And and then so then you get to like like Salatin's systems where he's going to be moving his pens around and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like okay, so these animals are in a cage and they get and so Salatin found that he can reduce his feed bill by twenty percent, but he still feeds them this feed. And their choices are: you eat the feed, and Salatin will also feed them a kelp, mm-hmm. and you can eat the kelp, uh, or you can eat the grass and the weeds that are here, uh, the polyculture that's here. And that's your only choices. And and it's kind of like, I don't think, I, I believe it's not enough choices. But I believe that when you feed it, when you feed that chicken, when you give that chicken a, a rich enough buffet of choices, then they don't want that feed. And and one, and then plus, another thing is like, how, how about this? Why don't we take that exact same feed, but let's use human-grade feed, something that passed the test for human-grade feed, and then let's feed them that and see what they choose. So, like, uh, uh, one of the things that I've, I've, I've written about in the past is somebody said, uh, I went to visit a farm on Vashon Island <clears throat> outside of Seattle. And they talked about how they had this problem once the chickens got out and ate all the strawberries. Mm-hmm. And my point is, is, like, then then you're obviously, if they ate all the strawberries, and they wiped out your strawberries, it's pretty obvious that whatever they're getting inside the pen is not sufficient. If, if you're feeding them sufficiently, yeah. and then they get out, there's nothing of interest out. Everything that they like was in. Why even leave? Other than just they're bored or something. Yeah. We provide, uh, you know, our cows. We're a closed loop on the cows. They don't eat anything that isn't grown here. The chickens. We still do buy some of the chicken feed outside. We have an arrangement with a really great organic farm up in uh, just over the Canadian border and we set up a co-op here with everybody that lives kind of in the county mm-hmm. and in Portland can come up and we just do a, a wholesale order and we buy it you know much cheaper but we noticed because they do human grade organic in their feeds a lot of it is human grade organic and when we started feeding it to our chickens they used to leave chicken feed behind we always bought organic but they used to leave a lot of feed behind and go forage off. When we started giving them this, they were just like, oh, whoa, got to have this, and eating it, like, totally. So I like the idea that you're going to plant tons of things that chickens love to eat for them all year round, and that you'll provide them this superior feed, and they'll leave it untouched, because the other things they find are far superior. Uh You just have to figure out how and what they want. Well, what we saw was the quality of the... It's got to be something that the cows won't eat first. Yeah. But what I get is that that place that's providing this feed is doing really high-quality stuff. They're yeah. actually looking yeah. at all of the things that a chicken can't read a label. And, you know, we look at the label and we go, hey, that looks pretty good to me. But a chicken looks at it and says it's either, it either passes or it doesn't. Right. You know, and if the quality is low, then it's not going to pass. So I want to wrap up this podcast, and I've got, I, and so I want to finish up the water kefir bit. Mm-hmm. What is it, <laughs> and how do you not screw it up? Water kefir, it's uh, you know those little crystals that you get, um, and and we have some. You know, I often have some. I just sell them to people over, you know, who call me up or email me. Um, mostly, I just pass them along to the classes. You get them once, you have them forever. You never have to, because they multiply. So you can pass them along to your friends, too. And what you do is 
the secret recipe. It's these little crystals. They're all like about a quarter inch, round, kind of transparent, milky looking, um, and a solid little crystal like a jewel. And you add some sweetener to it, and you add some water to it, and you add a piece of dried fruit to give it flavor. But sometimes I expand out. You know, I add rosemary or mint or things like that. And you screw on the top really tight, and you let it sit there for two days, just two days at room temperature. And it eats almost all the sweetener that's in it, and it exhales all the carbon dioxide. So it carbonates it just like soda, except that it's got a few billion probiotics in it. Didn't, didn't somebody say, like, isn't that, like, this? what's that on your windowsill over there? Is that some sort of uh, like lava light. organic <laughs> lava lamp or something? Yeah, the crystals float up and down with the with the carbon dioxide bubbles that are floating up and down. They're, uh, they're beautiful to watch as they're doing this, you know, propagating all these probiotics. Yeah, they're pretty cool. They're pretty cool. So we do a class here, like, once a month. So I remember it was, like, you put in, like, the best thing you put in was, like, fruit juice or something. Oh yeah, and and water. Hair juice. Yeah. Yeah, because we we when we do our cider pressings in the fall, we we press grapes, cider, uh, grapes and pears and apples, and the pears are really 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 sweet. That juice is almost syrupy. So yeah, I put the crystals in that and let them just eat the natural sugars out of that. So remember, it's like it's fizzy like pop, fizzy and and yet it it tastes way. Better than pop. The first time I tasted, I remember I drank some and I went, oh, my body just instantly knew this is good for me. <laughs> good. Yeah, this is good. Yeah, gimme, 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 gimme. It was like a real visceral response. I need to four it. more glasses. Right and I think I think that was the first word, one of the earliest words I ever heard from you was, that's all there is today. We have to wait two more days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, 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 but. In the summertime, though, I make a few gallons a day, you know, yeah. just to, if we've got interns here and it's hot, I know we're going to go through gallons a day. I mean, what the cost is so minimal, you know, but it can't really be, you can't really buy it in the store because you've got to pay attention to it. It needs personal interaction every 48 hours. And it, you not know, not, not too much, but enough that a, a store glance, can't yeah, do yeah. it. And you, why, uh, a day calendar so you can keep track right. how many days You can do there. that, but what I'm saying is you can't buy it in a store because no. it deteriorates too yeah. rapidly mm-hmm. after that. So it doesn't mm-hmm. have any real significant shelf life for the probiotics in it. But you can make it yourself for, what, pennies a day, mm-hmm. and you've got all the soda you the can The funny make. thing about it is that the flavors of soda in the grocery store that you find, generally speaking, the stuff that tastes best with the kefir, water kefir, is not the general flavors you find in the stores, like orange right. and strawberry or whatever. It's not the papayas and the pineapples. It's the cheap dried fruits like yeah. dates and figs. Apricots. Mm-hmm. Things that I often don't care for, but that taste great. It's water keeper. Yeah, yeah. it's water yeah. keeper. It's flavors, yeah. All right, you guys uh, You guys have anything else to add to this podcast? No, hey, this is fun. <laughs> Let's do it again. <laughs> if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about living a more symbiotic life with nature homesteading, and permaculture all the time. Good word. That's not a recording.